This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, the Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our podcast is available 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you will find us. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and you can find me on LinkedIn. In January 2021, more than 200 DEI champions from around the globe came together at a virtual summit to share their stories. They included casting directors and bookstore owners, community leaders, and stand up comedians, pro gamers, archaeologists, government insiders, and even a master puppeteer. The goal was to transform well intentioned conversation into real action and meaningful change. My guests today are the authors of a book that tells their stories, shining a light on the ways we all can make a difference. Jennifer Brown and Rohit Bargava's book is called Beyond Diversity 12 Non Obvious Ways to build a more inclusive world. Jennifer and Rowett, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we start, I just want to share a little bit, a little bit of your amazing backgrounds with our audience. So Rowett is the founder and chief trend curator of The Non-Obvious Company. An innovation and marketing expert, Rowett's resume includes 15 years in big firms, like big, like Ogilvy, Leo Burnett, the founding of three companies, and vast consulting work with organizations that include NASA, Disney, and the World Bank. He's the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of seven books, and his signature title, Non-Obvious, has been translated into 10 languages. Jennifer is an award-winning entrepreneur, diversity and inclusion consultant, author, and podcaster. As the founder and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, she's designed workplace strategies for some of the biggest organizations in the world, creating cultures of belonging where everyone can thrive and contribute to their fullest potential. A former vocalist who was classically trained at the Manhattan School of Music, she also holds a master's in organizational development from Fordham University. So both of you, welcome to Women at Work. So I want to start off with what may be a natural question, which is how did you two find each other? Talk to me about your partnership. Well, I think it all started from the summit that you mentioned. Uh, we had brought together so many different voices. And, and what was interesting was many of them were, if you ask them, uh, not necessarily DEI people. Uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of a self-distinguishing way that some yes. people describe themselves. And uh, and even between us, um, Jennifer uh, would describe herself probably as a DEI person. I probably wouldn't. And, uh, and that was what started the spark, I think, that uh, caused us to then develop this partnership. It was, could we come at this topic that has been so widely discussed by so many people from two different perspectives and offer something valuable as a result? So did you two build the summit together or you met at the summer, Jen? We worked on it together and then I participated in it, I think as a moderator, Rohit, right? Yes, you um, did, yep. It was a panel yep. on DEI and tech, which is something that interests me and is very relevant as a, 
as this hugely fast growing field uh, for tech solutions to help us hack our biases, so to speak. So (laughs) we could talk about that a little bit more, but uh, if we're human, we're biased. And uh, sometimes tech is our only remedy (laughs) to, to those human wiring flaws. So it was a fascinating panel. And, um, and we just, we bonded through the experience and, um, and I think it was honestly the most comprehensive summit I've ever been a part of creating and participating in. There were so many diversity dimensions in our speakers represented more than I'd ever seen. And that credit is such a credit to you, Rohit, because, uh, you know, your, your audience is super far ranging, um, but I'm just, I was very proud of all the facets that we were able to show and how truly inclusive it was. So Rowan, tell me more, when, when Jennifer says diversity dimensions, conjures a few things in my brain, but tell me what that, that meant for you in the context of the summit. What it meant, I think, was uh, including people whose voices and perspectives are often missing, even from a diversity conversation. So for example, we had people talking about ageism at work. That's not typically part of a diversity conversation, which is often focused on ethnicity or gender or even disability, even though oftentimes people with disabilities are even left out. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, how interesting would it be? And you mentioned my background coming from the world of advertising agencies. I mean, if you look around an ad agency, if you see anyone over 40, they're probably the boss and that's it. Like there's nobody else under 40. (laughs) Um, I mean, over 40. And so, and, and part of it is because we just, when you turn 40 and it was the same thing for me, like five years ago, I didn't really feel that comfortable in that environment anymore. I was like, I got to go do something else. And so we wanted to shine a light on those dimensions also. Like, what does it feel like to not feel comfortable at work because you're older than everyone else Mm -hmm. around you? And Jennifer was another um, one of the diversity dimensions also about the area of endeavor. It seemed like this was a people anchored in all aspects of professional life uh, throughout the world. That's right. That's right. I mean, so many different domains, domain diversity was represented. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. You know, um, industry, diversity of employees or entrepreneurs and subject matter experts and thought leaders, right? So there's that diversity. Um, Yeah. And there's global diversity too. We had so many global voices. So yeah, you're right. It was, um, it was truly, I mean, I learned so much. It really stretched my mind and, and it's, it served actually as a check and balance for me after we went through this whole process to really dig deeper to make sure that representation is coming to the table or is on the stage. Um, and, you know, Rohit and I, I think both would probably say that it stretched our accountability that we applied to ourselves in terms of any platform or event that we are a part of and not just planning, but that I say mm-hmm. we are a part of, right? Part of the accountability and Rohit tells the story in the book and I have a similar story is of being a panelist or a guest that's part of something, but didn't organize it. And yet still kind of like introducing, you know, this possibility that, Hey, we don't have what needs to be represented here. And, you know, I'm happy to step back. I'm happy to provide somebody, you know, recommend somebody. This is one of the many, many ways we can activate our, um, our beyond diversity thinking, if you will. So I want to probe this a little bit, even though I have some other big picture questions we'll get back to in a minute, but this is just too delicious. So Mm -hmm. in thinking about these different domains of diversity, um, 
with each path that I, I think if you went backwards and said, okay, so we've got these people who are different ages, different races, different genders, different sexual preferences, but they're also different fields of endeavor, which also means they're educated differently. Mm -hmm. So the dimensionality of that diversity just grows as this expands. But now you're talking about how that applies in two different places that we don't talk about often. The mantle or the all male male panel is like one of those terrible things that lots of us are working to never witness or have to be part of again. <laughs> um, but you're also talking about the power of a diverse audience. Tell me why and what that means to the experience of other people at an event. Hmm. I think the the diverse audience was such a big component of what we wanted to try and create because. I mean, if you think about the moment in time when we did this, it was still sort of early on in the pandemic and people were kind of accustomed to working virtually and virtual events in general. Mm -hmm. And one of the upsides of that is we could bring together 200 people who you probably could never convince to be in a room together because it wouldn't be <laughs> worth their time right. to just have one session on the thing that they really care about. Whereas when we did it virtually, uh, we had so many people who said yes uh, to doing it. And Jen mentioned, you know, we also had global people. So we had to deal with like Australia time differences and all that sort of stuff, which is really challenging. But because we could bring those voices together, all of a sudden you had one event where someone who works in Hollywood casting would be listening to someone else who's writing children's books, would be listening to someone else who's working in the fitness industry and, and happens to be overweight, but also fit at the same time. And like, you could learn from all these different perspectives because we brought them together in a way that really none of them had ever experienced. And I think the most telling thing for us was even within the panels, which are on specific topics, oftentimes you'll meet people on a panel and you'll be like, oh, I saw you at this event or that event. And what we heard over and over from our speakers, even within panels was, I didn't even know about the work that you were doing and how amazing is this? And, and months afterwards, we would hear from speakers saying, that person I met at your event, we're working together now. And that's like, I mean, that's the, the business equivalent of introducing people who got married, right? I mean, that's beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. So Jennifer, I have a question because I am a, an event planner myself. It's one of the many hats that I wear. And I think increasingly we see organizations trying to create virtual events, ways of connecting communities, whether it's employees, customers, you know, people doing it in their real lives. I'm particularly intrigued about how you cracked the time code problem and made this work on an international scale. Can you share a little bit about how you organized to make sure that that dimension of diversity could actually be part of the program? Yeah, that's such a great question. Yeah, we've, um, like Rohit said, there's the silver linings of, ha of having to work in this virtual way has just unleashed so much creativity and I think solved a lot of problems that we used to struggle with around inclusion and exclusion of, for example, different parts of an organization, even, mm -hmm. um, you know, with having one, one LGBTQ employee in Colombia, say, of a multinational company, always feeling like an afterthought, you know, um, and being very sort of headquarters driven or that bias towards corporate, you know? Uh, so yeah, so we just paid a whole lot of attention to um, pre-taping, I think is so mm -hmm. brilliant. Um, preloading content and sequencing it so that almost nothing is live is kind of a, a secret technique, I think that's been developed from this pandemic. And, um, you know, and then, yes, somebody does somebody need to be inconvenienced? Yes. But I think, you know, I, I even bolted on a piece later on into my panel 
because you know we had some technical difficulties and and we 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 recorded somebody later and and spliced it together so you know we've all become tech experts i think and and um you know there's a little maybe i don't know if polish is always possible but people appreciate the effort mm -hmm. of being inclusive across the globe and um making sure those voices are, are all pulled together but yeah we really did i think make good use of that asynchronous learning right mm -hmm. and and what our tools now afford us to do and i just wanted to say laura another thing i've loved is a pre pre-recorded and air something but then join for a q a that's yes. another really neat thing that i've been asked to do in other events uh and that can be you know working with my schedule or time zone but so there's a live and a tape and a recorded and and there's some blend there that i think between those two things we can we we have the tools of inclusion um, available to us. We just have to get a little creative. I love it. I'm in the process right now of planning Wharton's first future of work conference. <sighs> and we're, we're deploying very similar techniques. Um, and it's also a testimony what you said before about how to, you know, you can hack your way into more <laughs> inclusion. Um, but I want to back up for a minute. Clearly, you are innovative people individually and collectively. But tell me, um, you have this book, what's non-obvious thinking and connect the dots to the summit for me. Yeah, this is probably my favorite question ever. So thank you. <laughs> uh, Non-obvious thinking to me is, is the solution to a lot of problems that exist in the world, because what it says is to anyone, you have to challenge yourself to see things that you would not usually see, to pay attention to people that you usually would ignore, to consume things that aren't meant for you because it opens your mind. And in the process, not assume that anyone who thinks differently from you must be stupid. Uh, or misguided. And so it is an open-minded philosophy of the world, I think. And that's what we've tried to teach for the last 10 years uh, through many different books, through all of the work that I've done on trends and research into the future. And so for me, it's really been a life mission to try and promote this idea of the world needing more non-obvious thinkers. Because if we had that, uh, we would solve better problems and, and we would get along better too. So that's kind of what it means to me. I really love it. As a person with a background in the arts, where I think being trained as a visual or performing artist was fundamental mm -hmm. to how I solve problems creatively in a non-arts environment, um, and that the value of the new idea is so core to the culture. Um, it can be really hard, though, if you're not steeped in that. And even when you are part of that community, to open your mind up to things that are outside the scope of what you always thought was for you or where you belong. So Jennifer, you've had um, a rather intense experience with training in a formal arts environment and made this profound transition into being um, just as much of a dynamic player, but in a very different world. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about one, what was that transition for you? What took you out of music and ultimately into the business world and how it shaped your thinking? Yeah, thank you, Laura. Thanks for inviting me to share that um, that dark time, but a time full of possibility and reinvention. Uh, I, I injured my voice as a trained opera singer out there performing, and um, I had to get several surgeries to remedy it and um, was literally silenced uh, and also realized after a couple rounds that I wouldn't be able to use my instrument in the way that I had intended. And um, while heartbroken, I, I was able to 
find my way into a different field as um, as a stage performer in a way, but more as a facilitator of leadership discussions. And I went and got a second degree in organizational change and leadership and really discovered that I could take my love of being in front of people, but working with them and learning with them and facilitating a, a, from A to B. And I just, I, I loved it. I still do it every day, right? I'm trying to facilitate people to change and, and facilitate their comfort and confidence. So um, I like to say I was, you know, meant to use my voice, just not as a singer. But what I discovered is that the voice is this powerful met lifelong metaphor for me of, you know, discovering, you know, losing my voice, fighting to get it back, uh, realizing I should never take it for granted. I could be using it more, which is true of all of us. And then also the voiceless, the extent of how many of us have felt voiceless in the organizational mm -hmm. context and in the world and not seen and heard. Um, and how could I give voice, given the platform that I, I now have, give voice to the voiceless? And could I be the voice? And so, you know, it, it's such a beautiful arc that I never could have foreseen or planned. But <laughs> that has landed me. And the other way I wasn't using my voice is I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community. But imagine I was endeavoring to be an opera singer and music theater performer, and I closeted, you know, and terrified that I wasn't going to be able to work you know, terrified that this would kind of set the destiny of what I was capable of accomplishing mm -hmm. in this world. And I wasn't going to let that happen to me. So the fight for the voice is really poignant for me. Um, and what I have, how I have transformed as a result of being challenged in that way, I would never give up for anything. So it forged me, it, it, it uh, made me resilient, it made me creative. And you talk about a non-obvious thing, you know, sexual orientation is often unseen and not perceived. And so, you know, for me, the coming out process continues to this day, every single day, multiple times a day, and it's uncomfortable. But if you're not uncomfortable, you're not leading. It's, um, you tell the story so beautifully and there's um, so many components of it that I think are really important that I just want to bring into high relief. So one is just, um, I've always believed that musicians, artists, researchers, mm. this isn't something you do, it's who you are. It's fundamental. It's so integral to your sense of self and how you operate in the world and the way that you um, carry that with you into a different kind of impact and endeavor is just so inspiring, Jennifer. Um, but also what it meant to come to come out of the closet in a community that despite a lot of expectations is actually rather gendered. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah. the fear that you had at the time, um, the classical music world, even mm -hmm. the jazz world, mm -hmm. um, it, it, especially for women are very underrepresented and it's, and it can be rather, um, limiting. So to see that you were also able to break out of that and help other people is just so inspiring. Oh, thank you, Laura. I feel so seen. <laughs> so Rowett, one of the things that I've wondered is about this title of beyond diversity. Um, talk to me about why that's the framing. What's the message that's in that that you want people to take as they contemplate what's in this book and this experience for them? Well, there, it's no secret that diversity is a hot topic right now. I mean, if you look <laughs> yeah. at the bestseller lists uh, for books in particular, there's lots and lots of books about this topic of diversity. And I think that a lot of times what's been happening is people have drawn an equal sign from diversity to uh things that are one element of diversity, such as discussing racism or uh, the African-American experience or like the experience of any one individual group. Uh, and for us, beyond diversity meant not taking all of those perspectives and 
talking about them in a still separated way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what we wanted to do was talk about them in a human way. And so the structure of this book really speaks to that because we have 12 chapters and the chapters are not chapter one, the African-American experience, chapter two, the LGBTQ experience. Like that's not how we divided up this book. We divided it by human themes that touch all of us, storytelling, technology, government, education. Uh, That's how this book is divided. And so the way that we wanted to talk about this topic of diversity really, we felt went beyond what the conversation had typically been about it. And that's kind of what inspired the title. Um, I I love the way that you framed the book, tapping into all those different sectors. Um, You also had, you know, as a well-written book does, particularly one that's trying to get us to re-engage with it and then use the tools when we are done with it. Um, there was a structure that was deployed throughout at the end of each chapter. And for those of you who are out there who want to check out the book, I recommend you do it. But really, these end of chapter pages, I think, are just so helpful. Um, and you gave three different framings for each one, what needs to happen, what you can do, and conversation starters. So Jennifer, talk to me about why those three? What's the power in them? Because you don't settle on something that clean and elegant overnight. (laughs) Thank you. Well, Rohit and I are always asked to give the the audience with key takeaways and concrete to-dos that they could apply the next day, right? That's like the the refrain that every speaker uh, who does this for a living hears. But I appreciate it, right? Because we're swimming in a lot of complexity and we do need to nail it down. And we, as the teacher facilitators, experts, whatever we call ourselves, like that's part of our job. And so um, what needs to happen is a systems question, right? That's a macro framing, right? And that's Mm -hmm. why that's important first, because, you know, equity issues in our society need to be acknowledged as systems issues, systems that need to change. So what needs to happen is that bigger context, right? Um, That what is our vision for the world? How would education look different? How would government look different? So we've got to be able to see it to be it, as we often say, right? Visualize what's possible and hold that as a motivating factor, right? And and something we can coalesce around. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what I can do, obviously, is sort of where do I start? What, you know, what can I focus on? And um, boy, it was, it was, it was, it was not hard to choose. It was hard to narrow it down from the chapters because there was just so many choices, but we try to really pick our favorite, you know, activities, so to speak, checklists, if you will. And then, um, and then starters, conversation starters. I cannot tell you, Laura, every day leaders on my keynotes ask me, what, how do I start this conversation? It's so Mm -hmm. awkward. It's so, I'm so uncomfortable. I'm so incompetent in a way I don't, I'm not equipped. I don't know the answer. What if I don't do this well? Um, and I often say, you know, don't make perfect the enemy, the good here, because (laughs) no learning of a new skill ever happened perfectly, but we have to give ourselves space and grace. And, um, we thought it was important enough to script out, you know, those conversation starters, because if we can just get people started and we can get them into the, the water, then they'll figure out kind of how to swim but it's that first uh, effort that I think people are really self-conscious about, particularly when it comes to this topic and uh, so many people feeling the sensitivities around it and not wanting to cause harm when we're in a time where we're acknowledging harm, you know, in so many ways. So I, I like to see this as, yes, we're hesitating, we're fearful, but I hope it's out of a place of deep respect you know, that I do not want to be a part of the problems that have occurred in the past. I want to be different, but I'm afraid I'm going to perpetuate it unwittingly, you know, 
it comes across throughout the book. So Rowett, question for you, dialing back a, a kind of a level out, which is that you are self-proclaimed non-expert on DE&I, yet are clearly bringing a vision to bear. Um, you bring a vision to life through all of this. How did you move from still to taking action to make something like this happen? How did you take your first step? So I think, I mean, diversity has always been a part of my professional experience because I've been in situations where I look differently from others. And, you know, for anyone who's listening, you can't see me. I'm an Indian American uh, heterosexual male. And uh, I lived in Australia for many years, and that's uh, not a particularly diverse, uh, diverse place. At least it wasn't back then, and, and it's getting more diverse now. Uh, but I was surrounded by people who didn't look like me. And, and I think I had a bit of an unusual experience as a male also, because for my entire working career, I've been in industries that have been predominantly female. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked in communications roles. My bosses have typically been female. Uh, I now own a publishing company where 80% of the people we hire are female um, or identify as female. And so, you know, that's a maybe a little unusual compared to some other men, but I think that we all have this uh, hesitation, even people who work in DEI, when mm -hmm. it comes to this topic, because we feel underqualified to talk about it. I mean, here I am on your show. And the first thing I'm thinking is, well, I'm not a woman. So should I even be here? Right. Um, and that's a typical thought process for any of us in any situation. We feel like, should we be here? Like, are we the ones who should be talking or should we sort of gracefully bow out and let someone else take that spot? Right. And I think that for me as a non-DEI professional, what was really important to me was sharing this message that diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't important because it's the right thing to do, even though it is. It's also important in business because it makes your business more profitable. Like when you have more diverse teams, you come up with better products, you see mm -hmm. more innovative ideas, you are flexible, and you're able to uh, pivot, which is a you know popular word in business. And all of those things become possible when you don't have a team that all looks and thinks the same way. And so for me, it was really important to get this message across that, yes, it's, it's nice to have, and yes, it's a social good, but also there's a real concrete business ROI behind caring about this. And that means that you shouldn't just put it in the nice to have category and hire one minority candidate and think that you're done. That's not enough. Right. And and that was really important for me to get across. And, and I think for, for Jennifer too, I know she talks about this all the time as well. Right. I have to say, one, you are a force for good and you are welcome on Women at Work. And we're glad <laughs> oh, you're doing you. what you're doing. And that you're using, as Jennifer talked about, your voice to help make change happen on multiple levels. The first chapter in the book is on storytelling. Um, talk to me about why that was placed there. Why is that the place we begin as we go on this journey uh, through the book and through these experiences? It's so interesting that you started with that because when you're writing a book together, as uh, Jennifer and I did, a lot of things that you talk about in the book uh, cause debate, right? You talk about, should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? And the choice of putting storytelling as the first chapter was not something we had to debate. We both instantly sort of felt like, yeah, that's the right call. And the reason I think is because the way that we consume stories and the way we think about stories in our lives is such a powerful indicator and driver of what we believe and how we see the world. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of the natural place to start a book about 
diversity, equity, and inclusion, where we're challenging people to see the world from a broader perspective. Because it's really hard to do that if you're only consuming a certain type of story, or if you're only telling a certain type of story. And so what we tried to do in, uh, in the summit and also in the book was teach people to start with the story and to shift their perspective of what stories they're actually choosing to consume, because that's a great starting point to get into this conversation. So Jennifer, I want to start that we don't have stories without storytellers. And one of the things that um, I really appreciated that you mentioned in our first half hour was that um, while you came out when you were about 22 years old, um, as I understand it, every time you meet somebody new, you're coming out all over again. Mm -hmm. And there's a a vulnerability that comes with that and a courage that's necessary to just embark on every day. So how did you help um, other people learn how make a safe place for other people to tell their stories? Mm, that's what we call psychological safety. Um, it's such a, it's becoming a, a big conversation about workplaces because in order to shift workplaces, we need more storytelling and storytellers for the purposes of building inclusion and understanding where there are gaps, right? Um, and so we need to witness our experience. You know, we need to be more public about it. We need to be more honest about it. And the and the the, sh the shift that's happening and the challenge that's happening in workplaces is we're so uncomfortable with cultures that do that. You know, we don't want to have those conversations. We we have swept so much under the rug and really have, I think, denied. You know, ha haven't shown a light as that disinfectant on. <laughs> some of the harms that have been caused mm -hmm. and all the, also the trauma that people are bringing into the workplace that they're sort of working through every day, which causes a lot of exhaustion, fatigue, and a lack of productivity and ultimately engagement and ultimately uh, retention for employees. And so, you know, my dream of workplaces is there are places where stories can be told without fear of being stigmatized and backlash and negative consequences, but rather are celebrated. And, um, and the storytellers are varied, you know, and, you know, there's so many messengers needed in this work and, uh, you know, Rohit's point about identity, you know, sometimes I present and people say, what do you mean? This is our diversity speaker. You know, I walk on stage and I know that's what's going through people's heads. And right, because for those of you who, because this is radio, Jennifer's a lovely white woman. I'm a white woman, <laughs> right. white blonde woman. Uh, and so the challenge, you know, right away to the audience is what is non-obvious about me? You know, and what is not obvious about you that you don't talk about or the person sitting next to you, our job in the workplace is to tell the truth these days. And the good news is the shifts that have happened have opened a door and Rohit and I know we have our foot propped in that door. We are not letting it close <laughs> because we finally get a chance to really build a workplace that's built by and for more of us, right. To work for more of us. Mm -hmm. And that was not the original design. And that's why so much as harm has been caused by this system that we sort of bump up against like flies on a screen door, you know, it's just over and over again. And um, so now it's a working with, I think, to reshape and <laughs> not fast enough for a lot of us. Um, but the storytellers, we need to step into the light, you know, Absolutely. and, and I think too, the people you assume don't have a story to tell that's relevant about inclusivity and diversity, that assumption is often incorrect. Um, and just like it is for me, if somebody said, oh, what could she know? We are still dismissing people of certain identities as, oh, you sit over there. You don't actually have something to contribute. My argument is, you know, the, the privileges that some of us hold because of our identities, that is precisely what is needed to shift big systems. Because with some of these identities that some of us carry comes power. 
mm-hmm. and, pri- so and e- privilege. So even in our own multidimensionality, where there may be aspects of who we are that are underrepresented, that mm. need to be given voice to, where there are other dimensions of our identity that put us in, give us more representation and with it more voice, we've got to use it to help right. everybody else. Yeah, it's like a Rubik's cube, Laura. Like I think of it like, <laughs> if I trust you, I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to show you, right? That's a great All the metaphor. facets of who I am, but the trust piece is important, but um like the tone of an organization and a culture can either discourage that or encourage that and celebrate it. So we have those choices to make every day. Well, I have a question for you on the other half of this equation and as, as our master marketer over here, which is how do we um, help those people who would benefit most from that non-obvious consumption? Um, how do we get um, people to get exposure to, see, be open to, listening to stories that aren't their own. We felt like it starts with this perspective of how you treat people in the, in the beginning. So a lot of times what we saw is that a conversation about diversity starts by accusing someone of thinking a certain way, uh, accusing someone in the worst sense of being a racist without knowing that's anything not going to play well for anybody. Not anyone, right? Not anyone, not anyone of any identity, right? Because we don't want to we don't see ourselves that way. I mean, probably even racists don't see themselves necessarily as racists. Um, and so part of it is speaking to the self-identity piece, which is how do you, how does one see themselves? But the other is that this idea of like seeing other perspectives can't feel like this scary thing that only some people can do. It has to feel like a journey that we can all take in small different ways. And that's beneficial for us uh, in some way. And, and look, one of the things you, you talked about and, and we've talked about here is the identities that we hold. Mm-hmm. And as co-authors of a book going beyond diversity, one of the things we knew instantly was that even our two identities, which are so different, still aren't encompassing all of the different perspectives that we need to bring to this book. And so, yes, we talked about the 200 speakers from the summit, but also we had six contributors to the book whose names are listed on the front cover. Uh, If you Mm -hmm. look at the front cover of the book and their pictures are on the back cover. And in addition to those six contributors, we went out and found 10 sensitivity readers. And this was such a huge element of how we learned. And, And for anybody who's listening, who's not familiar with this practice. There are people who are professional editors, professional writers, who will read a manuscript or a thesis or a paper uh, or a white paper, anything, you know, from small all the way to a book and help identify language that may be offensive for some people, may identify things that are insensitive in the way that you've written them, not because you're trying to be racist or insensitive or anything, just we all have our biases and they will spotlight those. And the practice of bringing those 10 in to read the book and give us feedback on it. But also the way that we did that was such a, such a perfect example of what we wanted to try and put out in the world, because we brought in these 10 sensitivity readers from all over the world. They all said, in order to read a chapter, here's what our rate will be. And all the rates were different. And not only did we engage all of them, but we went back to the ones who were undercharging us based on what we knew the rates were from everyone else. And we said, you're not charging enough. Here's what we're going to pay you instead. And by the way, that's what you should charge anyone else who does. Okay, wait, we got a time out. Hold still for one moment, because there's a lot that's here that is fascinating and really important that I want to focus on. So Rowan, these are sensitivity readers. This is genius. I think this is, I'm going to be doing this going forward. So first tell me, how did you find them? 
So there are networks out there of sensitivity readers. There's Facebook groups, there's LinkedIn groups. Uh, and also, I mean, I own a publishing company, so I'm tapped into a lot of editors who can suggest other people. And so it was a combination of getting them suggested to us and also just Googling and finding them, but now we have an amazing list. And so we'll make sure and give you the details. I'm happy to share the list. Would you with please? Because I think whether it's somebody, whether you're a book publisher in journalism, or I'm an academe and we produce materials for our students, um, there's no shortage of places that could benefit this from this. So before I awkwardly cut you off, um, you were one of the things you were about to share was what the process is the way that you created equity amongst the readers. So Jennifer, um, tell me a little bit more about this, especially from a workplace perspective, because, you know, it's one thing to try and diversify the pool. It's another to create genuine equity and then include inclusivity. How did you guys do this in this process? Yeah, this is so critical. Um, it's happened to me. I mean, I have underbid myself, underpriced myself and had somebody come back and say, actually, and, and it's probably the men in the whatever board I'm on who, who quoted a different price, you know, and it's such a humbling conversation to have that, oh, wow, I, this is a good learning for me. And it's a little embarrassing. Um, but I think that, you know, companies are going through this now where they're actually, um, they're, they are, it's becoming forbidden to ask about salary history, because mm -hmm. if you pin your offer to salary history, you're going to be perpetuating the pay gap because exactly. the pay gap is present in that person. And every successive role they've taken, it has just compounded. So really this is the next wave of, of dealing with things like salary in job interviews. Um, and I, my favorite story of pay equity is Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, discovered there was a huge pay gap and was horrified at Salesforce years ago and wrote a $3 million check to gross up everybody's pay as the first step um, and continues to do that. But the systems piece of why did this happen? How can we remedy it? How can we go back to the source and fix it once and for all and then hold ourselves accountable on an ongoing basis through audits? you know, to fix this. So I'm don't write this check again. Right? right. So I love the, the thinking that displays both the, the individual addressing of the harm that can be that action that can be taken, but then the commitment to the systems change is really the important part. So it doesn't ever happen again. Uh, and so this whole question of equity is, um, is a fascinating one. I think to leave it up to the candidate to negotiate and to understand where they fit and to negotiate effectively when some of us have not been socialized to be comfortable uh, with how to navigate those kinds of conversations. And, how to and navigate on our own behalf and negotiate right. and ask for more. It, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we don't have the mentors and sponsors in our corner saying, hey, by the way, like here, I'm going to coach you. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to say. You know, one of the biggest tragedies is women and people of color are much less mentored and sponsored. So mm -hmm. we are outside of that kind of, you know, whisper in the ear about how to navigate something or the, or the connection to an opportunity or the lobbying that somebody may be doing behind the scenes to say, this person's worth it. You need to take, you know, you need to put them in that role. So it just, the whole thing of leaving it up to us to do all of our own advocacy, I think has been a flawed way of thinking and really unfair and really taxing on a lot of us to sort of overcome the things that we haven't oh. learned or been exposed to. It's a profound hurdle on multiple levels. So one of the things that strikes me though is what you did um, was important on multiple levels. So one was that um, you weren't talking about a big system, you were talking about 10 people, but you still did that audit to see what was going on. But more importantly, um, 
really enormously important is that part of why these systems exist is that people are the people are it, there's greed and there's fear and there's the desire to take care of your own and that how many business owners would give away money if they don't have to um, often referred to as kind of zero sum thinking that if you win i lose um, here you are i have to imagine you don't have a massive trust fund fueling this whole project um, and money matters um, talk to me about that leap in where did that goodness in you come from that you could move past zero sum thinking and apply it on your own project yeah thank you i mean so first of all i mean this is something we've done for the last five years of owning a publishing company my wife and i um, because we routinely do get editors proofreaders designers uh, who underbid who undervalue themselves and and i have to say i mean the truth is oftentimes they are women um mm -hmm. And uh, as a result of that, we kind of came to this early to say, not only are we going to try and achieve equity in what we pay people, but we want them, we want to make it highly visible that we are a professional client who is willing to pay a certain amount. And therefore, they should feel confident charging that same amount to everyone else. And your question about like, well, you know, does then that cost you more money? Yes, it does cost us more money. But let me tell you what else happens we become their favorite publisher to work with. And as a result of that, they're always available when I need them for a project. So I have the best talent available when I need it, which is huge for any business owner. And also when they come across projects that might be good fits for us, guess what publisher they think of first to send their authors to. So I'm not doing it because of that, but there's a real business benefit to treating people well and doing business in this way, which is that they think of you first. And as a result of that, over the last five years, we've just been exponentially growing because we are a great partner to work with, I think, and because they want to keep working with us. And so for anyone who's thinking, well, doesn't that just cost you more money? Wouldn't you just want to save money, especially as a small business owner who obviously doesn't have unlimited <laughs> funds, right? We're not a corporation. Uh, I am fine with spending more money because at the end of the day, we're doing something good. We're helping people and we're generating more business. I mean, it's successful for our business too. So every metric that I could look at as a business owner to say, is this working? Is working. So it goes back to what you said in the first half hour, two things coexist, that it is a moral imperative, but it's also good for business. Um, at the yeah. heart of it though, is that you're also um, thinking short-term and long-term at the same time. So Jennifer, you're working with big organizations. Um, last I checked, um, that decision-making process isn't as clean, involves uh, systems, lots of people, lots of hierarchy. Um, how do you see the relationship between short and long-term thinking when you're coming in to work on DE&I or um, talent you know, attraction and retainment um, with these large organizations? Yeah. Thank you, Laura. So I do DEI strategy consulting for anyone who's listening to this. And I have a wonderful team of, of consultants that do that. And we get, we get a lot of requests for the quick win, you know, for the, give me a checklist. Um, I want this to be successful right away. And this timeline, you know, as, as if you can kind of put this work into a, Oh, you mean in six months, we can't fix yeah, something. What? That's We're not going to be inclusive for 400 years. <laughs> But, uh, you know, in change management, you learn that quick wins and early wins are really important for morale. So balancing uh, the immediate 
And uh, with the long term is so important, like you articulate. And the great, a great example of it is like Pride Month, I'll just say, which is in June. You know, every month has typically several communities that are being celebrated in that month. We're in Black History Month right now. Um, but companies are like, wait a second, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. What do you mean I need to? have an LGBTQ lens on Black History Month. Like you can see their heads exploding. <laughs> but what that's called is, for those of you who are wondering what this big long word means, that is intersectionality. So intersectionality is, is looking at a community that, and acknowledging the diversity within the diversity. And so I think what's long-term about that is that we don't just have our LGBTQ lens in, in June of every year. You know, this is a this is a community that needs support and understanding and education and 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 building up, um, and more mentorship and sponsorship every day of, of the year. And by the way, there's all kinds of diversity within the diversity going on. So we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We must, um, because otherwise, what happens is we have a sort of superficial look at Black History Month. We have a superficial look at Pride. When what in the LGBTQ world, what we're not doing is going beyond maybe the the white cisgender male part of the LGBTQ plus community, right? The folks that have the most privilege to achieve, you know, you, every, every activist will tell you if you focus on those who kind of get through first, <laughs> there's a lot that you're not paying attention to. We need to build from the foundational identities of communities, those who are most marginalized and build from there. It kind of reminds me of universal design in the disabilities community. Mm -hmm. If you've ever taken advantage of a curb cut on a corner, street corner, you know, designed originally for wheelchair users, convenient for all of us because it's great design. Yes, indeed. So if we can design our strategies for the most marginalized traditionally to work for that, um, then we all benefit. So I think that's that long-term piece, but boy, corporations want fast. They want wrap it up in a nice bow. Give me a list. Um, and they don't like the answer I give them, which is this is not about the destination, but about the journey. And this is a practice. It's building a muscle and you can't just go to the gym and lift 50 pound weights. You're going to be really sore and you might hurt yourself. <laughs> so speaking of which, um, I want to talk about how you guys did your weightlifting, because as you have these conversations um, and you mentioned this a, a little bit before, but I want to dive in with the time that we have left. Um, it is hard and scary for many people to take any step first or the thousand step into dialogue with people who are different than themselves, especially um, for those who in some aspect of our identity are in a more represented role in that community. Um, how, Roy, let's start with you. How did you, um, as you start to have those conversations, learn to, um, when you confronted your missteps or got negative feedback, um, how'd you deal with it? How'd you cope with it and march on? I think what I, and I'm presuming that you've yeah. stepped on it a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, pretty consistently. But I think that the one thing that I that I feel like I developed was uh, a real resilience to uh, difficult situations. And probably it came from my 15 years working in the agency world where I became the uh, person that they would send in to the unhappy client um, who was okay with getting <laughs> yelled at because he knew that it wasn't about him. It was about the situation. Right. So I don't take it personally. Um, uh, I'm almost impossible to offend uh, with anything. 
Um, and, uh, and I think that skill also was honed in Australia, uh, because people are very direct and it's not because they're trying to be mean or rude. They're just telling you what they're thinking. And I think that that skill set is not one that, that everyone has. And I think perhaps it's even in shorter supply now, um, with people because we're so quick to be outraged by something that people necessarily didn't mean to be outrageous. And so people are afraid to ask simple questions now. And for me, I think what, what was important to do in, in this book was to create, like Jennifer said, a, a safe space. And one of the ways that we thought to do that was to give people very concrete ways to, to start the conversation. And so you mentioned at the end of every chapter, we have those three things and the conversation starters. And there's three questions usually per chapter. But what we also did is we built out this really robust online resources site for the book where we took each one of those 12 themes and we went out to our community and we came up with six or seven great conversation starter questions. And then we put them all on PowerPoint slides and we put up this 70 page PowerPoint with what we called stealable slides. And we said, hey, if you wanna have a conversation about this and you need a good starting question that's not going to be accusatory and that'll open up a really nice conversation, download this PowerPoint presentation, steal one of those slides, put it up in your presentation and start the conversation in a uh, in an approachable way. And so like those were the kinds of tools that we wanted to try and create to say, look, just because it's a sensitive topic doesn't mean you have to avoid it uh, and, and never, never mention it. Um, let's bring it into the conversation in a, in a safer way. So for those of us who can't necessarily channel your courage and um, what sounds like not thick skin, but resilient skin, um, you've like, you know, in the spirit of the creative commons, you've put these tremendous resources up there for people. And so anybody who's interested, where do they go to find in particular those slides? So if you go to the site that we've set up for the book, which is nonobviousdiversity.com, uh, you will find all of those materials and not only the conversation starts, but we talked multiple times about the summit. And one thing that we didn't kind of specifically say is all of those sessions are available on YouTube for free. So there's 50 hours of content. If you, you know, need to binge watch anything <laughs> that you can go out and get for it entirely for free, that is totally available. And that's all on that website as well. Oh my God, that is such an enormous resource and so exciting. So Jennifer, there, where can people find out more about your work and how to find each of you individually? Thank you, Laura. And this has just been a pleasure. Thank you. I just, it's, it's just a delight to work with you and to compare notes and always a pleasure to share time with you, Rohit. Um, so I am at jenniferbrownconsulting.com. And uh, you can read about our consulting services there. We have some wonderful online programs for practitioners and advocates at different levels of their journey. Uh, and I'm a keynoter. You can watch and, uh, uh, and learn more about my podcast at jenniferbrownspeaks.com. I have a will to change podcast called the will to change, sorry, um, where I'm celebrating my 200th episode. Very Congratulations. Exciting. Thank you. And we're all over social. So just look me up um, and you'll find us on LinkedIn and, and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. I'm Fantastic. at Jennifer Brown on Twitter. And I don't and know, I was very early to get that name. I don't know. How I <laughs> well done. And Rowett, just quickly, we're running out of time. Um, Rowettbargava.com place to find you. Got you. It. Yeah, that's uh, one spot. And I'm also uh, on all the socials, just my full name, or uh, you can go to nonobvious.com for lots more. Fantastic. Well. Both of you, thank you for joining me for the great work you're doing. Um, 
If you want to, if you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. Find me on LinkedIn. Our podcast is available 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura's Arrow. Big thanks, as always, to Patty Hall, our producer, Chris Tukes, to Kara Pogue for all her work behind the scenes. I'm Laura's Arrow. It's Women at Work. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.